You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning. I was um, sitting there, I guess I'll put that there, I was sitting there as thinking ironically, I was, I was going to come up here and declare something, uh, and it, it just landed on me as I was sitting there. Um, I was going to declare that there is uh, the best sledding hill in Madison, and I know it's been kind of waging war a little bit of whether it's high stand or Elver, but I took the youth group yesterday to Elver, and it's hands down the best sledding hill in Madison. And I find it ironic because we're talking about greatness today that I'm declaring what is best or great or first. And also, as I was thinking about that, I also was thinking of this as Steffi was reading the passage, that we just had trivia night and uh, it was all about being the, the greatest, you know, finding your, your good, best team. I thought it was ironic that that hit us on this week as we look at this passage of what Jesus defines as greatness. Anyways, I don't know why I said any of that, but um, <laughs> so glad that you are here, whether you're joining us online or in person. Families, I love seeing your kids here in person. Thank you for making that uh, decision to come, and um, it's a blessing to have you kids in our service uh, today. Uh, but again, it, it's, uh, I love opening God's Word. My name is James. Uh, I serve here on staff. I uh, do a lot of things with families and kids, and uh, we're going to continue our trek through uh, Matthew uh, and looking at the words of Jesus. And so um, I, to get us going, I want, us to, I want you to think back to your childhood. And if your kid's here today, um, think, of, you know, think of the present. Um, but go back to your seven-year-old self. Go back to your seven-year-old self. Uh, and what did you dream? What did you dream to become? What did you dream? And this is, uh, you know, participation. What did you dream? You can, you can answer Online, answer to whoever you're with. Anyone in here? What did you dream as seven-year-old to become? A dentist? All right. Anything else? What did you say, Benny? A dentist. A dentist. Wow, okay. That's cool. Two dentists. Anyone else? Don't be shy. What did you dream to be as a seven-year-old? MBA. MBA, yes. Professional basketball player. Artist, yes. One more basketball player. Man, we got dentists. Everything. (laughs) I love it. Well, for me, uh, up until high school, when my dream was shattered, I thought I would be, or dreamed every day in the backyard, I thought I was going to be the starting shortstop for the Oakland A's. Like, that was my dream, my ambition was to do that in my life. Um, but all of us, whether you answered or not, in our own ways, like as a, even as a kid, like we aspire to greatness, to be a good dentist, to be a good basketball player, right? To, to be or to do something great with our lives, to be seen as successful or accomplished or influential, right? And this desire, we have it even as, as kids to be seen as this way. Really, it's that desire to be seen as, as first or best. That's why kids, if you remember, like we, we chant, like, last one there's a rotten egg, right? Because we, we don't celebrate the kid who comes in last. No one wants to be the, the, the loser of the bunch. It's, it's not how we're wired as human beings. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been to a junior high track meet, but my wife coaches 
junior high track, and, and oftentimes there's like the runner as they're coming around the bend, they see like, oh, I think I'm actually going to come in last here. And so like you see like this like sudden like pull up like, oh, I got an injury. Like choosing to forfeit the race than endure the humiliation of coming in last. That's why when you play a game with a child, there's almost always that meltdown, right, of, of when they don't win the game. They want to win. It's why in, in school, at least for me, the coveted teacher-helper role was like to be the line leader. I want to be the kid first in line to lead everybody else through the school hallways. See, we, we have this desire to be first. This desire towards greatness, I think, is within all of us. And is this wrong? Or is there a way to pursue greatness in which honors God? Well, if you're not there yet, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. And let's just pray again as we begin our time together. Lord, I pray that you would remove myself and allow your words to speak. Lord, open your words to our heart and our heart to your words. May we be transformed, encouraged, and challenged by your words this morning. In your name we pray, amen. We're, well, our big idea is, is fairly simple this morning, but it's Jesus unlocking the secret to greatness. It's Jesus unlocking the secret to greatness, that God measures greatness not by one's position or authority, but by one's servanthood towards others. God measures greatness not by one's position of authority or power, but of one's servanthood towards others. And this morning, we have two really clear and distinct pathways. We have two clear and distinct ambitions of how this can play out. We have the way of the disciples that's, that's portrayed for us, the ways in which they think, and then we have the way of Jesus. So we have the way of the disciples and the way of Jesus. Well, first look here at the way of the disciples. And the context here is is really important for us to to pick up on as we jump into our text. Because Jesus and and the disciples, they're they're on a road to Jerusalem. They're headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, meaning there's thousands of Jews on this road with them. And in recent days, in chapter 19, if you flip back a page or just look back a few uh, sections, Jesus, we see he's speaking about the coming kingdom, of what will be true. Of, of the disciples' eternal rewards, of how they will sit with him in his throne room, how they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We see that in verse 28 of chapter 19. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus has just said this. And so as we come into our text today, what could be lost on us 2,000 years later as we we come into this text is the significance of Jesus' words in chapter 19 and how they relate to the thoughts of the disciples now in our text. And if you look right above our our text, we see that Jesus actually foreshadows not his, his, his kingdom but his death to come. But we're going to see, as we work through our passage, that the disciples have some way of filtering out what Jesus has maybe said about his death, and that there is a preoccupation with the kingdom and the rewards to come. 
that in a sense their, their, their hearts are buzzing with an eager anticipation, believing or at least hoping that once we get to Jerusalem, everything that Jesus has said about his kingdom, about his throne room, about his rewards, that's going to go down, or at least I hope it's going to go down. And so there's a preoccupation, so much so that they're able to filter out how Jesus foreshadows his own death. And we see this in the request that is made of Jesus. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which would be the disciples James and John, this mother comes to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before Jesus, she asks him for something. And he, Jesus, said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. So here we have a mom, the mother of James and John, and she's coming to Jesus with a favor, a request. And I don't know about you, but throughout all history, like moms do this so good, right? Right? They, they want the best for their precious child, and so they offer that unsolicited help, right? It's, it's like in Little League Baseball, right? You're not getting the playing time you want. So mom goes up to coach and says, you know what? My kid is, he's putting in a lot of work. He's getting better. You should, you should play him, right? It's mom, you know, going to your, you know, your employment as a teenager and you're, you're, you're frustrated, the lack of responsibility or, you know, uh, being treated unfairly. And it's mom going to your boss as a teenager and be like, you know, my son is actually more, more capable, more responsibility. You should, you should trust them more, right? Moms are good at this. And maybe in the moment we're embarrassed or annoyed, but we know moms just want our best, right? And here in our text, this, this mother comes to Jesus, and, and what does she request? Nothing too big, right? Just for her two boys to sit in the greatest seat, the highest seat of honor in the kingdom. So, so, so that all who look upon Jesus for all of eternity will see what? Her two boys, Sitting right by Jesus. Not a big deal. On one hand, we can commend the mother. Because she actually believes the words of Jesus. She believes in the reality of the kingdom to come. We can commend her for that. But on the other hand, she's far more concerned with the glory of her boys than the glory of Jesus. We see that she's far more concerned with the glory of of her sons and the glory of Jesus. You see, by making this request, she, she reveals the desire of her heart. And if we're honest, it's the temptation of desire that we find in our hearts as well. If you're willing to be honest, it's this desire, this idea, this ambition for self-glory, self-greatness, this desire to make all of life about me. This desire at every turn of life that just asks the question, well, what is in it for me? Now check this out. Most scholars will agree on this point, that the mother here in our passage is actually the, the sister to Jesus' mother, Mary, meaning that James and John would be the cousins to Jesus, which means that, in a sense, this mother is leveraging family relationship or connections to get ahead of the other ten disciples. 
She's using whatever it can to, to cash in on eternal rewards where maybe the other disciples could not because of their lack of family relations. But before we shame this mother, I want to be very clear. This is not just an isolated desire of the mother. It's very much the desire of these two boys, James and John. If you look with me at verse 21, as the mother comes to Jesus and Jesus responds to her there in verse 21, he says, what do you want? The you there is first person singular. He's talking to the mother. He says, what do you, mother, request? But then as you look at verse 22, as Jesus responds to this request, and he says, you do not know what you are asking, that you is actually first person plural, meaning it should say, y'all don't know what you request. He's bringing the boys into this conversation. In fact, so much so that the mother disappears from the text altogether. And if we were to read the same identical account in Mark chapter 10, it's identical, almost word for word, the only difference being that it's not the mother who comes, but it's the two boys that come to Jesus and make the request. See, this is not simply this mother's desire. That's not the point. It's a desire of her sons as well. Meaning we, we should think far less that this dear mother is coming up to Jesus in some isolated fashion with like her boys like shrinking back behind here, embarrassed, annoyed, like, Mom, stop. It's, it's not that at all. And it's far more that the boys are actually engineering this whole request, somehow thinking perhaps that if we put my dear mother out there and speaking this request, maybe we'll get a more profitable or favorable answer, right? Even considering like this is the aunt of Jesus. So let's pause here for a moment. Let's pause here. By thinking greatness could be found in positions of authority and power. If that's our definition of greatness, authority, positions of authority and power. You see, James and John, they they clearly make um, a a power grab. They're, They're leveraging family relationships to grasp for themselves the seat of highest honor and authority in the kingdom to come. But, but what these two failed to realize and what we, and what we fail to realize often as well is that Jesus said, my kingdom is not what? Is not of this world. And therefore, the principles, the ideas, the ways of this world, it cannot be imposed in how we think of greatness or as we think of greatness within God's kingdom. You see, as Christians, we must define greatness and we must strive for greatness on completely different terms than our world. And God's economy, having more isn't winning. Having more doesn't mean that you are winning. Therefore, Jesus' answer to this request, it doesn't shock us, right? In verse 22, Jesus says, Y'all don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And James and John said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So their attempt doesn't work. But what is this cup? What is this cup? Well, it's the same cup that later on in Matthew we see Jesus shrinking away from in horror in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It's a cup filled with wrath and and suffering and sorrow. It's the cup 
Jesus must and does drink for our redemption. So, so Jesus is, is, in a sense, turning to these two brothers, James and John. And he's saying, so you want to be great? You want to be great, boys? Well, guess what? You want to sit in my throne room? You want to be with me in, in, in my throne room? Then, then guess what? Buckle up. Get ready. Because first you will participate not in my glory, but in great suffering and humiliation. You see, Jesus is, is smashing their categories of how they understand of what it means to be great. What it means to be great in his kingdom. Because it's yet to sink in for them. Although Jesus has told them many times before. This is not their first conversation about greatness, nor their last. But it's yet to sink in for them that the pathway towards greatness, the way to Jesus' glorious crown, first requires a stop at the gruesome cross. It's cross before crown. Cross before crown. But Jesus is not shutting down their pursuit of greatness. And I want you to hear this this morning. He's not shutting down their pursuits, but he's redirecting them of how they think about it and how they might pursue it within his kingdom. You see, Jesus, Jesus is in one sense saying, I want you to be great in my kingdom, but you must seek it on God's terms, on the path that he has ordained, on the track that he has ordained, and on that path to glory, there will be suffering. There, there will be sorrow. There will be great sacrifice. And as we'll see later on, it's the only path, though, to complete joy and freedom, and peace. You see, it's, it's a lot less self-glory and a lot more God-glory. And we see that in verse 25. Jesus calls all the disciples and says to them, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And then he says in verse 26, It shall not be so among you. You know, our world, it, it celebrates all those who are on the top, all those who have climbed to the top of the pile, right? And when you get to the top, you do everything you can to keep everybody else below, underneath you. And sadly, we, we've all experienced this, right, of leaders who, who are more dictators than, than servants, right? We probably maybe have even experiences within the church, of leaders who do this very thing that Jesus says in verse 25, of lording over their authority. But what does Jesus say? It shall not be so among you. You see, everything in our natural selves wants to flash every time any position or power or authority we have in this. We want to flash that badge and say, remember who I am. But we've not been called to lordship. We've been called to servanthood. You see, the disciples thought about greatness and pursued greatness like that of the world around them. But Jesus has a better way, a perfect way. Jesus has a better way. Verse 26, the second half of it, Jesus says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you 
must be your slave. The pathway to greatness is servanthood. It's slavery. Interestingly, as, as, we, as I opened, right, and said, what did your seven-year-old self want to become when you grew up? I, I didn't hear servant. I didn't hear slave. Right? Maybe those online, you, you said that. That's interesting, right? And I think about it in this sense, like, a few years ago, Emily and I worked at a camp. Uh, and think about, like, you know, job fairs, right? I think of, like, the classic office episode where um, Michael Scott goes to the career fair at the high school and, you know, he just lays out a single piece of paper. When, when, it, when Emily and I were working for a camp, we went to all these career fairs for colleges trying to recruit um, kids to come work at our camp. And we were a low-budget, small camp that had no resources or anything. And so we went to these career fairs like at Wheaton or Moody and like these, these camps that have lots of money like set up these elaborate displays. Like you could roast, you could roast s'mores and have like, a, a mar, like marshmallow, mar, chocolate. It was like amazing. They had like rock walls. They had incredible displays so that, you know, you're attracting people who are going through, college kids going through, who need like an internship, right? And here's Emily and I, like, we have a nice tablecloth, you know? <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of like this in our text, right? Like, what is Jesus inviting us to? What am I inviting college kids to do, spend a summer with me? I have a nice tablecloth. They, you can roast marshmallows over there, but like, hey, come, come over here. This, this doesn't necessarily sell, right? What the world, re- the world rewards, you know, like the, the, the position of putting, putting yourself on top. But God rewards those who put themselves at the bottom. What the world esteems most, like influence, status, power, authority, we, we find of little value as, as followers of Christ. For what actually makes you and I great in the kingdom of God are the things the world despises, like humility and lowliness and submission and suffering. But, but, but Jesus doesn't call us to anything that he himself doesn't endure, right? And so we find in Jesus our perfect example of what it means to be the servant slave. In verse 28, Jesus says, And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our example, our, our pattern that we are to follow is Jesus. And if he is our pattern, then we must look in the gospel accounts of what are we actually following, right? And so I just went through Matthew of like, what does it mean, Jesus, to be a servant of all? Bear with me. Let me read a few. Just perusing Matthew chapter 4. They bring to Jesus all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and the pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and Jesus heals them. In Matthew 8, verse 2, a leper comes to Jesus. And kneeling before Jesus, he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. What? He touches a leper, saying, I will be clean. Matthew 8, verse 5, when he enters Capernaum, a centurion, not a Jew, comes forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. Again in Matthew 8, verse 14, and Jesus enters Peter's home. And his mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever, and Jesus touches her hand, and the fever leaves her. Again in Matthew 8, that evening they bring to Jesus all who are oppressed, 
by demons, and he casts out the spirits with a word, and he heals all who are sick. Matthew 9, verse 10, and Jesus reclines at the table, and there are many tax collectors and sinners with him and his disciples. Again in Matthew 9, behold, a woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years comes up behind Jesus and touches his garment. And Jesus turns and says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he felt compassion. Because they were a sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Again in Matthew 14, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent him around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored of Jesus that they might touch only the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched were made well. In Matthew 15, great crowds come to Jesus, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and they put them at his feet, and Jesus heals them. As we'll see next week, moved with compassion, Jesus touches the eyes of the blind, and immediately they regain their sight and follow him. We can keep going. This is just in Matthew. Wherever there was a need, Jesus had compassion. Wherever there was a need, Jesus fulfilled it every single time. Does your life mirror this compassion of Jesus? Does your life mirror the love and service that Jesus had for others in his life? Before I stepped into this role at the Vine, I worked for a youth mission trip agency for a few years, and we created mission trip opportunities around the country uh, for high school students to get engaged uh, within. It's a great organization, great leaders. And part of my job description, or really what my job was, was just to connect with youth leaders, youth pastors across the country, and invite them into these opportunities in these mission trips. And so every day I was on the phone or in the, in the emails of just talking with leaders about missions, about what youth leaders value in missions, about what, how missions like activates the faith of students, how they've seen that about local mission trip strategies, how to serve and engage in your own communities. It's missions, missions, missions. Not a bad job, right? There's no downside in talking and hearing about God at work in the heart and lives of youth all across the country and how to engage in that. But here's what I found interesting. When the conversation turned from this idea of of missions, like we have this idea of missions, but as we turn that to actually uh, the work of the mission... There was often resistance. Meaning, mean, were youth leaders interested in giving students a, a one-week life-changing mission trip experience? Yes, 100%. But were youth leaders uncomfortable and resistive to the ways in which their group would, would, would have to serve, like who they would serve and what they would be doing? Were they resistive to that? Yes, You see, the idea of of mission trips sounded all great until we started working out the details of who they'd be serving and what they'd be doing. Meaning, I'm only interested in serving this particular type of person, you fill in the blank. Or I'm only interested in serving in this particular type of work, you fill in the blank. Are we not all like that in our own lives? Whether consciously or not, we have this tendency just to cherry pick, to choose and to pick who we will serve, how we will serve, 
when we will serve. We want to serve others on our schedule in the ways that are comfortable, convenient, and only to those whom we believe deserve it. Meaning I'll go with my city group right to the shelter, I'll, I'll sort clothes, I'll spend one night a week doing that. But I, I wouldn't consider giving any more time, right? It's, I'll, I'll shovel the driveway for the neighbors I enjoy talking about, or enjoy talking with. I, I, I like these people, I'll shovel their driveway. But I wouldn't consider it for the neighbor who really annoys me, or perhaps ridicules me. I'll generously open my, my checkbook and, and, and write a check for, for these particular types of people. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily consider it for these types of people. You see, when I read Matthew, I discover Jesus willing to serve the needs of all people, anytime and anywhere. He served different classes of people as we read through that, right? There were wealthy people. There were influential people. There were poor people and marginalized people. There were young people and there were old people. Different, different people groups, Jews, Samaritans, Romans, Gentiles. He served women. He served men. He, he served the prostitute, and he served the leaders. You see, Jesus is our example, an example of what it should look like to live out this calling as a servant slave. And we could stop right here. And be done. Play a song and it'd be good, right? But we can't stop right there. That Jesus is not um, just our example. Because if we did so, there, there would be a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding um, would be that Jesus died only as an example of, of how to live selflessly. That, that Jesus died only as an example of what it looks like for someone to humble themselves and to serve the needs of others. You see, Jesus gave his life not just as an example, but what does it say in verse 28? As a ransom for many. As slaves of sin, as the Bible says, all of us needed to be ransomed. We needed to be rescued, redeemed. We needed to be bought. And the death of Jesus, it's not only our example in life of how to live, but he is our very redemption. He has redeemed us for himself. You see, as, as we think about this idea of service in our lives today, many in our world will, will gladly forfeit uh, particular comforts to serve others. Right? Many in my own neighborhood, my next door neighbors, are folks far more generous, far more kind, far more gracious in many ways than myself. You know, living in, in Dane County or just in America in general, like volunteerism, it's celebrated, right? Giving back to our communities, helping others in needs, it, it's not like cutting across the grain of culture. But we need to see this. That the example of Jesus does not merely stop at the forfeiting of our comfort, does it? The example of Jesus, the pattern we are called to follow, extends to the very giving of his life. 
Jesus in John 15 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. You see, the separation from volunteerism and the call to a servant slave is the ambition of your heart. And this is exactly where Jesus wants to take his disciples then and us now, our heart. Where we ask ourselves, what is my ambition? What, what is my aim? Is, is this all about self-glory? About self-promotion, self-greatness, self-love? To have others look upon me and say, attaboy, your generosity is incredible. But see, volunteerism has an end of itself, and it's you. And if we live in this silo of self-focus, it will never produce a heart of contentment or satisfaction. Because volunteerism, it's going to cease any time your self-glory is compromised. We're ourself and, and self-ambition, it's threatened where we feel like things are coming around us. We'll stop seeking the good of others and start worrying about ourselves, right? It's just our knee-jerk reaction as human beings. But this is not so for the servant slave. Because our ambition is not self-love. It's others' love. It's not self-glory, but it's God-glory. It's not, well, what's in it for me? But it's how can I show others the love of Jesus? It's not an ambition that's event-oriented. Sign me up for that volunteer experience. It's, no, I'll serve right now, every time, right here and in this way. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle commitment. It's not, a, it's not a, a, an event-based idea, but it's a lifestyle commitment that I'll serve anyone, anytime, anywhere. It's not self-seeking. It's God-seeking. You see, the ambition of our heart must match the ambition of the heart of Jesus, an ambition that went to the cross to save us from our sins. And it's a costly ambition, right? But this ambition, this call, this willingness to suffer and endure the humiliation and sorrow is a grace. And I want us to hear this as we close, that this call that Jesus calls us to is really a grace. For in calling me to deny myself, God frees me from my bondage to me. You see, the more I have myself in focus, the more I will always think about how others inconvenience myself. But see, the call to servanthood is the tool that Jesus uses to free you and I from this discouraging and debilitating bondage to ourselves. And we become free to serve others. The call to servanthood is not just for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. It's actually God's grace to you and I as well. What's the secret to kingdom greatness? It's measured by one's servanthood, not one's position of authority or power. Let's pray that this be true in our lives. Father, we thank you that you came to serve us, that you willingly laid down your rights as our God to endure the cross, to endure the shame, the humiliation, 
that we might be freed to enjoy a relationship with you, God, forever. Lord, I pray in small and great ways that we would follow your example, that we would carry in our hearts a commitment to live a life, to serve others, a willingness to give up our rights as we saw and see in your life's pattern. Lord, may we have eyes to love others well, a willingness to lay down our lives for the sake of them coming to know you, Jesus. Lord, we love you, we worship you, Lord, we praise you that you are the redeemer of our souls who's ransomed us from our sins. In name we pray, amen.